Um, hey, if you could go with your go in your Bible to John chapter nineteen. We're going to continue our series. Uh, Shale, when you asked earlier about uh, who's who, you would have to take the lunch if they didn't show up. Ryan was asking if you're paying, so I don't know if that I don't know what that means. But uh, anyway, uh, I just want you to know that uh, we're we are grateful for all of you guys pouring out to help on that festival. So um, I'm not the guy that prays for weather unless it's in mass. Like we remember we were in a drought. It's hard to imagine when we were in drought. And we prayed. It was like midsummer. We're like, okay, you, whoever's praying can stop now because it was just raining. But you know. Um, just as you be thinking, you know, we're, we're at a safe time of year generally with weather, but just be praying, that, you know, on that day, in that area, on that spot, God just grants us some, some, uh, some, some grace. So to have, you know, you, uh, we have good weather. I'm, um, I'm excited about that event because I'm, I tell you why. Uh, the Sunday service, so just remember as you're walking around, make yourself a committee of one as you're interacting with people. Talk to people and invite them to church. Say, hey, tomorrow we're having church. Tomorrow we're having church. And so as we get them under the tent, we're going to be actually, we didn't plan this. It looks like we were that good when we started the series in John. We are preaching on the resurrection next week. So that's amazing to think about. We're having a, like under a tent in a neighborhood, going to the people, and we're preaching on the resurrection of Jesus. So that's, a, that's amazing. Um, we are in uh, John 19, and uh, we are going to finish John 19 today, and then we're going to pick it back up and, uh, and 20 next week. This is a continuation of where we were last week. Remember, when we stop or you see verse stops or chapter stops, don't let that take away from the contextual journey of what's happening here. And I'll explain that in just a minute. Now, I want to get your permission with something. This is a heavy topic to talk about the crucifixion. You talk about the crucifixion, preachers love to preach on this because it preaches. And it's, a, it, it's powerful. We can talk about the sacrifice that Jesus went through. We can talk about just the, the magnificence of, of the sacrifice. But we're going to teach through this. Do not think, because I'm divorcing emotion from this, that I'm, I'm divorcing the, I'm segregating the, uh, um, the main thrust of what's happening. But we're going to teach through this. And I don't want you to think it's just coming off dryly. I think it's, it's just something I want to share from my own heart. Because as I studied it, I was just studying this last, you know, even as late as last night, I'm looking at it and, and I'm like, man, I just don't want to make this a lesson. Like, can you imagine if any of us had gone just in our human sense through what he went through and somebody were just to talk about it analytically. But yet we're going to teach through it, okay? So in that, in that vein, let me go ahead and pray and we'll, for me, okay? Lord Jesus, please speak through me. Don't let me be a distraction to your word and god may you have whatever is of this description pierce our heart in jesus name amen so you know you would ask people around the world what the cross means as a symbolism as a symbolism is very real symbolism stands for uh, something symbolism comes out of something of substance generally speaking this is a cross that many would identify as a Western culture. If you were to go to Asia and talk to an unbeliever, what does a cross mean? Oh, it means they think about the West. And it's, the irony is, of course, this movement, this gospel being presented in the East. And we got to remember that this type of crucifixion, again, we said last week, there were about 30,000 crucifixions, we believe, at the time in which Jesus was crucified. It was exercised by a Roman government, nobody else used crucifixion by means of execution you were not executed for a petty theft 
you know, the thief next to Jesus when he's, he's on that cross is not up there because he, is, he was a petty thief. He had more than likely stolen a lot. You're a habitual repeat offender. You are uh, an insurrectionist. You're somebody who's trying to overthrow a local a municipality or even a national government. Um, this, would have been a, this would have been a very painful death. Um, most people would be... Uh, they would be tied off at the wrist when they were crucified. Jesus pierced in the ulna area. They, he was he was gone. He was he was pierced to a place of, um, of it was painful to begin with. And of course, the cross. I think it's important to explain why it's designed the way it's designed. It's designed to keep you alive for two or three days. The the cross beam would have been your support mechanism to bring you up to breathe. So as your as your as your body's drifting down, gravity's pulling you down. You're absolutely um, void of strength, the cross is actually, you're pulling yourself up in order to breathe. So two or three day typical death time. Jesus is arrested in a garden. And I think we need to, we need to, to grab a picture of what's happening here. He's arrested around one in the morning. He would go through six trials, three criminal, three civil, each court kicking him out. A local, provincial, um, almost like a mayor, you know, and then uh, this uh, high priest, this court, finally find his way to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, Roman governor of the area, normally stationed in Caesarea. They were not stationed in Jerusalem. He only came. To, Caesarea was considered the Roman capital of Israel of that area. Jerusalem was a Jewish capital. They came down to Jerusalem during times of religious feasts because they were afraid of nationalistic. Um, riots and, and mobs. Remember, the people, the Jewish people today, were looking for a Messiah in a nationalistic sense, somebody to come in and kick Rome out. So there was heavy tension. So Pilate is in Jerusalem at this time. The people are clamoring for crucifixion of Jesus because he's claimed to be who he is. And so they won't walk into the area. Remember, we talked about it's called the Praetorium. That was an area where a Jew would never go into because they would be unclean. But yet they're calling for the murder of someone. We saw the, we saw the hypocrisy in that last week. So here we pick up in verse, it, it, well, it, we pick up in verse 15. I'm going to review a couple, of, a couple of verses from last week. But don't miss out on a picture that in the garden he was arrested and he was not in, um, I don't want to say, it, I catch myself in these words. He wasn't in full health in a bodily sense. Um, he was, Jesus was suffering from a massive form of anxiety in pain and worry. You know, I think that's important to state when you have 60% of our pharmaceuticals are geared towards those particular areas and the pain that many in this room suffer. Jesus is identifying at that place and even going further. He suffer he is suffering from what they call hemodrosis, what we call, call now. It's a, it's a form of blood mingling with sweat glands and the stress, the hyper level of stress is causing such anxiety that he is bleeding as he's, as he's sweating. He knows that several hundred men are coming, even though he can make them powerless, he is going to feel the brunt force of everything they do to him in the same way we would. So when you talk about identification, start to grab those pictures. And now he's, he knows he's going to be crowned with a date palm thorn, which would go up to 12 inches, embedded and cranked into his skull. And then he's going to be flogged. He's going to be scourged. 
and his flesh is going to be ripped apart. Remember, as Jesus is going on this cross, he is unrecognizable because of the bloating, the swelling, the bleeding. This torment starts in the garden. It's 1 a.m. Around 6 a.m., the crowd is swelled to the sixth and final trial. Jesus comes out. They bring him out, and the people begin crying here, verse 15. They cried out, away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. We talked about the hypocrisy in that last week. So he delivered him over, over, to him, over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place of the skull called Golgotha. So Aramaic is called Golgotha, Hebrew Golgotha. Uh, in Latin, Calvaria. You've heard Calvary when we talk about that. A lot of, uh, a lot of songs, a lot of older songs. We, those are the descriptions of this particular uh, area. They would typically make the person drag the cross for the longest route possible. This was done for a reason, so that the, the Romans would enact a sense of, um, of, of power on the populace. The people would see this person going through the area, marching around, and, and finally to the place. So they would not take the shortest path possible. As a matter of fact, Jesus would go in what an area we called Via Della Rosa. You know, this is a, um, this is a, a, a famous streetway that you would see where, where he's being brought down. Now keep in mind, if you're, just a little side note, if your mind's wondering, is that Spanish? Why would, it, why would a Spanish street be in the middle of a, of a Roman province? in a Jewish town. You have to remember that Rome had conquered Spain and Spanish territories years and years before. As a matter of fact, the 10th Roman legion was a Spanish legion. It was a Spanish-speaking legion led by a Latin-speaking centurion. Pontius Pilate, even though he's born in central Italy, was raised, we believe, under Spanish, um, in a Spanish-speaking area. So they would have assigned these Spanish legions and battalions to a Spanish-speaking governor. So the street, Villa de Rosa, is, a, is, is something that you, it, oftentimes you think, wow, it just doesn't sound like, you know, maybe we thought he was like uh, a, a romanticized name of something. No, it was the actual name of the street. And so that's where he went. There's, um, there's also a picture in our mind of what this cross would have looked like as he's carrying it. Um, the pole to the cross, we believe pretty accurately, would have already been installed, would have already been in place. He would have been carrying the upper beam called the patibulum. That is what he would have been carrying through the streets. So that would have been tied to him. He would not be pierced till he was there. Now keep in mind, nobody else was pierced. They were tied off. And that, that's going to come into play later. You're going to see that in just a little bit. So Jesus is, is going through with this upper beam, verse 18, there they crucified him. And two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now stop right here for a second. When you think of this, we think oftentimes, you know, when we see a picture of somebody trying to portray what's going on, we see a picture. This was put in... Um, this is put in different languages, but I'll get to that in a second. Why did, why did he do this? Why did Pilate put a sign on there, King of the Jews? So when I study for a message, oftentimes what I'll do is I'll delve into, into secular 
books about what they're saying about this. I mean, I will go in and see, well, I wonder what a, what a, a state-funded institution that just speaks historically would say to this. There was a moment in thought and time, and academia actually caved to this, and they said there's no way they, they would go for it. There was one thought that he did this to say, a Roman governor would say, I've conquered and killed the king of the Jews. That was eventually given over as complete hogwash because there's no way any Roman official would ever pick a fight with the Jewish population. Remember, they were down there to appease the Jews. Just let's appease them. Let's let them have their laws, their rules. We'll let them. This would never have been done. Now, the majority of opinion, okay, this is not, this is not fact. It would say opinion as to why this would be done. Like, why would he put this on there? You have to ask. It's okay to ask these questions, but it's also okay to know you're not going to get a 100% conclusion on it. But think about it. Do you think he would have done this to get back at Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest, to say, you've been, a, you've been a thorn in my side, and now, by the way, here's a king of the Jews. It could be. All we know is Pilate and the high priest did not get along. And at this moment, the high priest have convinced Pilate, even against his own wife's opinion and his opinion, that he shouldn't be crucified, and that he's finally like, he finally gives in and puts a sign on here. But look at verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So you have to remember different languages. You think of Aramaic, you think of Hebrew blending into that. That's a culture, the religion of, it's the language of religion, language of the people. Greek, the language of culture, of education. Latin, the language of rule, order, and law. And so he has it covered in every area. Verse 21, um, going to think I'm weird for, for underlining certain words, but I think it's, uh, I just want to break it down in a second. So the chief priest, catch me on these, on these two verses. I'm going to go to 21, 22, and I'll go back to 21. Watch what we read here. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but rather this man said that I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So they're looking at him and saying, what have you done? Why did you say this? You'll say he's king of the Jews. Say he said that he was king of the Jews. Now go back to verse 21. The reason I highlighted the word said is because that is written in an imperfect tense, meaning it's repeated. They're constantly repeating. You cannot do this. You can't, whoops, sorry. We cannot do this. You cannot do this. You cannot do this. They're repeating themselves over and over and over again. Verse 22, when Pilate answers, written in a perfect tense, meaning now and forward, no, he is going to be known as king of the Jews. What's happening is you have to grasp, this is a great truth to grasp, God works through believers and unbelievers alike. The Jews are saying, no, 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 he's saying this. Stop it. Pilate is saying, I don't care what you're saying, he will now be known as king of the Jews. The thought that Jesus in his body, in his last, uh, ex- uh, his last day of this 33-year journey completes the title of King of the Jews in the way he began it. When he was born, he was identified by the angels to say, before he's born, here's what's going to happen. This is who is coming. 
When the Magi come from Iran, modern day Iran, what do they come in and say? Behold the king of the Jews. So his title is being proclaimed by people who were not even believers. So Pilate is saying, no, he will henceforth be known as king of the Jews. Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, divided them into four parts, one part for each other, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one place from top to bottom. Okay, this was common practice, by the way, of Jewish victims, pretty much any victim of Roman execution. There would be five garments that would be um, taken. You had outerwear, you had innerwear, you had a headpiece, you had a belt that was very functional. It wasn't just a tie-off the thing for fit and form. It was for carrying pouches, and you had shoes. And you're probably thinking, how desperate could soldiers be to gain these pieces? Why would they want them? You have to remember, we live in a throwaway society. I don't care where you go in the world, we, we are the odd man out. We, I mean, if you have a car that's fully fun, uh, that's, that's working in a place and it stop, breaks down, you're going to fix that car to every degree. I mean, you go to Cuba and you walk into, you go in, in the Havana, you think you're in 1955 on the streets. Not one original part is inside that car, except for the interior. It's all been rehab. I remember going to, I was uh, in a country where I, there was a whole street dedicated to lawnmower repairs. I mean, these lawnmowers would be something Goodwill wouldn't take. But they'll repair them generation after generation. Soldiers would have kept the shoes. They would have kept the belt. They weren't paid that much. But why on earth would they want a garment that you know was full of blood? That had to be a war trophy. It had to be something to say, look what I have. It had to be something that could be sold to that small remnant of believers who we've seen are fanatics who would do anything. Surely we could get some good money. But in either case, this is what they did. And so they said in verse 24, they just said to, let, to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture, which says, let me stop right here before I read this scripture. This is referring to Psalm 22. Folks, if you could read Psalm 22 and see the prophecy that was declared, and we, I know I've said this before, that was declared hundreds and hundreds of years before this happens. If you're a skeptic and you ask, okay, Jesus knew what he was going to do. He knew he needed to be on a cross, and so he's willingly going to go up to a cross. What's interesting is the cross was not even known about. The Roman Empire wasn't even in existence when, verse, when Psalm 22 was written. They had never even heard of that, tor- that instrument of, of torture or death. Now, on top of that, Jesus fulfills these different prophecies, right? He can control that to a degree. But think about this. The soldiers are fulfilling these prophecies, So it says in Psalm 22, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is a direct prophecy fulfilled in verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. All four, by the way, named Mary. Four soldiers, unbelieving, four ladies, all believing, very common name Mary. They're all clamoring at the cross. The disciples, for the most part, had run away. They're gone. You must look at all four Gospels, though, when we start looking at this. And so some of the things I'm going to bring up are in the other synoptic Gospels. Synoptic meaning seen as. 
So they're going to be written in the first, and there's going to be seven statements that are made. These are called the seven statements of Jesus. First thing Jesus says is, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Now this is found in Luke. Don't miss the point of how unusual this would have been for the Roman guards to hear. They have typically heard people screaming, crying in agony, and saying, I'm innocent. How could you do this to me? Why would you be doing this to me? I have a family. Please don't let me die like this. Please kill me now. Remember the execution period on a cross, two to three days, excruciating, out of the cross. Two to three days, they are in agony, and Jesus says what I'm sure nobody's ever heard at that time, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Would they have taken it like, you don't know what we're doing? What's he talking about? Forgiving us? He, how could anybody be in a position of dying and try to give us a place of forgiveness? Jesus breaks through in these words the first time he's uttered something in a good little while and murmurs these words. Now keep in mind, he's not saying this for their ears. This is a natural reaction of Jesus dying. If you want to, we've talked about this before. If you want to see the authenticity, watch 12 men who go on to die for a faith. Judas was replaced in making the 12. They all went out and and died incredible deaths. And one of them exiled. And you you don't die for a lie. Well, you don't die. You're not going to die and sit there and utter these words that that he's going to utter. There is no... There is no, I'm sorry for leading you this way. These are murmurs to he and his father and to himself. He's saying these things and there's one time he's going to speak directly to the person next to him on a cross. So he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. The second statement comes out. He looks to the the thief who says, would you remember me where you go? He, that even the thief in his agony, in his dying moments, is recognizing and reckoning that this man, there's something about him. How is he maintaining his control? This thief is not flogged more than likely to the degree Jesus is. This thief has done something. This man is up there for a religious reason. And so he begs him, would you remember me? And Jesus in the second statement says, to me, you'll be with me in paradise. There's a third statement, found in verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He looks at her and think about these profound words. If you were to die in front of a parent, if you would be going through this agony, you would say, look away. Don't stare at this. Too painful. Go home. He says, woman, behold. Not just glance. Absorb and take in everything about me right now. Then he said to a disciple, he looked over at John, he said, John, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Jewish tradition would say that you were to be taken care of by your children. 
Jesus knew he would not be on this earth to take care of his mom. We would, there's all kind of thought that she would live nine years, 11 years, but all oral written tradition, we do know that she did continue to live with his disciple. He took care of her. The fourth statement comes. And this fourth statement is very, um, it's hard to grasp this. Eli, Eli, Lama, Seth, Seth Bathani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, if you're going to invent a religion and you're going to say here is our, here is our pinnacle of everything. Here's the one that we claim is the victor over death, that knows everything, that is omniscient, omnipresent, and that carries all the qualities and characteristics of God. And you are going to put him in a place of saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've spoken of it before. This is important to recognize. This is the abeyance of the Trinity. The Trinity who is constantly coming in to help. God who would come in, the Father who would say, there's my son being baptized, whom I'm well pleased. In the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus was the one who introduced the Holy Spirit. How did he introduce the Holy Spirit? This is my, this, he's a comforter. He's a counselor. He, he's, a, he's one who comes alongside you. He's your defender. Jesus gave these descriptions not because they were new, because they were pre-existent, because they exist at the time. And he said, you'll never have anybody that will come alongside you. The Holy Spirit is not moving to take Jesus off that cross. The Holy Spirit is obeying itself, is holding back. At this moment, things are getting, the the morning is beginning to turn to noon. Things are getting dark. There's going to be a darkness that falls in just a little bit. It's not even going to be recorded, by the way, in this scripture. It's recorded in Roman records. It's recorded in Jewish chronicles. It is recorded all throughout history as the day that this earth, this area went dark. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It breaks your heart to think. In a sense, forsaken means like you've forgotten me. Remember in the garden, he's going, God, you take this cup from me. He's scared. Was Jesus without sin? Yes. Did Jesus experience pain? Yes. Did Jesus experience anxiety? Yes. Did he experience frustration? Yes. Was he, did he experience all these things? Absolutely. A total dependency. And so when there's times in your life and you sit there and go, my God, have you forgotten me? Have you forgotten? Why would you let this funeral happen? Why would you let this go on? Why would you let this stress go on? It's perfectly normal. That's a human thing we do. The humanity of Jesus is crying out. Fifth statement, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all is now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, I, I want you to think about these particular words. Um, go back to verse 28. It says, I thirst. Jesus is, this is not the first time. He's, he's not showing all his humanity here where he hasn't before. Do you remember when he walked up to the woman at the well earlier in John? He walked up to ask her for what? 
ask her for water. He was thirsty. Keep in mind, he walked up to her and said, yeah, I know who you are. I know you've had five husbands. The guy you live with now is not your husband. I know your whole story. He knew everything about her, but walked up and said, I need a drink. Jesus is saying, I'm thirsty. Keep in mind of what his body's going through. We can't even imagine what his body's going through. He he cries out, I'm thirsty. Then they take a a jar. Now keep in mind, this is going to be different from the wine that would be offered to him on the Via Dolorosa. On the Via Dolorosa, as they're taking the prisoner through, or to any, any prisoner through on their long route to be crucified, they would take a stick, either a Roman guard would have it, or others who wanted uh, cheap, terrible thrills would take it. They would take a stick and they would put a sour wine up to the nose of the person and it was a deadening agent to keep them going. It was a drug. Keep this going. Deaden the pain a little bit so you can survive to the get to the place of where you're going. This was... A different type of wine, but had the same um, uh, 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 effect as well. They would bring it up, and they would, and they would try to give him something that was not poison to keep him alive, so that he would suffer more. He yells out, "I'm thirsty!" But check this out in verse twenty-nine. They put it on a on a hyssop branch. Within eyesight of the cross was the city of Jerusalem. We know Golgotha was located near the city. He could see that in in those synagogues, it was a day of preparation. There were literally thousands, thousands of lambs, or lamb being brought into the synagogue to be sacrificed. As they're bringing them in, they would bring them in. The priest would check the bones, look at them, make sure there's no unbroken bones, make sure it wasn't the, the litter uh, trash that they would be brought in from some, uh, from some farm, brings it in, inspects it, looks at it, kills the lamb. The, the, they would take it home. They would take this hyssop branch and they would take it, dip it in the oil, run, or the, the blood, I'm sorry, put the blood over the threshold of the door. And meanwhile, the Lamb of God, hanging on a cross, with sour wine put on a hyssop branch and given over to one who's not even noticed in Jerusalem. The irony of what is going on, the end of the sacrifices, what Jesus has come to say, it is over, it is done, no more sacrifices. You've been sacrificing to us. Heaven now has turned, turned everything around and now I am your sacrifice and you no longer sacrifice. So unbeknownst to Almost two million people in Jerusalem is the Lamb of God on a cross having a hyssop branch, ironically bringing it up to his mouth at the same time the hyssop branches are doning the thresholds of doors with blood of lambs. The sixth statement on a cross. Verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Again, The Jews did not kill Jesus. Romans did not kill Jesus. He gave up his life. Think about all that. um, Think about all that timeline. Think about those words, it is finished. Think about what it means 
that tetelestai, it's over. But that was the sixth statement. Verse, uh, verse 31 carries, I'm sorry, before verse 31, there was a seventh statement. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I don't know why, but maybe this hits me. You know, you read scripture and you reread it and you reread it. And 20 years later, you read the same scripture and something jumps out. Why is it for me, then Jesus, why would John have said, calling out with a loud voice? I don't know. The murmurs, were they soft? Were they garbled? Was he trying to articulate in the loudest voice he could, I suppose? He yells, Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. Verse 31. Since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would remain on a, would not remain on a cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man, and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. There's a great book written called When Skeptics Ask. They wrote, wrote, later wrote another one called When Critics Ask. It's written by, oh, how do you say, Norman Gies, Geisler, Howe, I think is one of the guys in there. It's great stuff. And what, they, what it is, it's a great book, by the way, these series of books. It walks through all the, the verses that kind of put you in a place of, what does that mean? as a skeptic or as a critic, and then answers these questions. Colin, I know you'd love reading those kind of things. And, and here in this particular case, you would get to this place and you would say, hmm, what did not break his legs? As a skeptic, I don't think I'm a skeptic when it comes to people. I believe in the best. I don't assume the worst. I just do. But when it comes to believing things, I'm a skeptic. I look at it, and I would, if you were to tell me Jesus fulfilled these massive amount of prophecies, I mean, just fulfilling one would be, you know, the Powerball would blush at the, at the prophecies being fulfilled at just one. But to fill over 300 and something, oh, come on, there's no way. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, I think he could. The skeptic in me would say, Jesus knew what he had to do to fulfill the prophecy, if he had to go to do this, even through excruciating pain, even this, even death. Sure, any man would follow that plan. I mean, you're on your way out. This is what's happened. This is what I would have thought as an unbeliever. But what's interesting are how many prophecies deal with unbelievers rolling dice. In this particular case, again, a a death on a cross was two to three days. And then he's put on a cross on this day of the preparation. They're going to go break the legs. They would break the shin so you're no longer hanging. You're no longer pulling yourself up to breathe because you're constantly pulling yourself up because gravity's pulling you down to breathe. They break you. The patibulum is no longer uh, going to assist you because your shins are broken. You can't pull yourself up and you suffocate. You die within a minute or two. Jesus fulfilling the prophecy of an unblemished lamb, meaning every bone is perfect. Again, Psalm 22, when David writes, um, his, his, my heart is beginning, is, uh, is beginning to turn into wax. Describing a, uh, describing a heart attack, a myocardial infarction. It, it, this is what's going on. You're going to see you in just a minute how that's being fulfilled. But these soldiers do not break his legs, fulfilling a prophecy. 
But then he mentions something in verse 34. And if you think about 34 and 35, you wonder, why when you're telling this whole story, would you bring up this this odd detail. Look at 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it borne witness. His testimony is true. Now watch, okay, let me read this again. Verse 35. Watch as John is speaking here. He notices water, right, and blood coming out, and he said, he who saw it has borne witness. He's talking about his integrity here. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. Just a couple of side notes. Whenever you see that you also may believe, John writes this through the whole book of John. As a matter of fact, he's going to finish it out writing that way. That's his style. That's his way. That's his, you know, everybody speaks in these certain words and in, in vernacular. This is how he writes. But why is he writing this? Why is he describing the fact that Jesus, we know, is from post-mortem evidence, would, would declare there was heart cardiac failure. Why would you write this? Because there was a group of people, and it was growing very large, of believers of Jesus in that day, in the day in which Jesus, I'm sorry, the day in which John is writing this book, there is a great large group of people who are saying, Jesus was Lord of all, but he didn't have a human body. So this number was getting bigger and bigger. The reason John put those two verses in there was to quell that group and to say, stop, I'm telling you, I saw what I saw. You know, morticians, oddly enough, still to this day, refer to this as as, um, broken heart syndrome. Let me see this. Verse 36. For these things... Those two words, by the way, these things, what we've talked about here, took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. He's referencing another verse in Zechariah 12, 10 that just happens to mention, oh, by the way, um, yeah, a long time ago was told our Messiah will be pierced. What does that mean? There was, there was no even concept or thought of it. What, what would that possibly talk about? Verse 38. <clears throat> After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Verse 42 is going, to, is going to get us to the point of next week. And will be an amazing chapter. You know, I became a Christian, really, at, at a Baptist level. And a lot of us are, grew up a lot of you guys, right? Kind of Baptist upbringing. We're guilty of something. 
Let me walk through people in which to receive Christ as your Savior, to take it from a head knowledge to relationship. What do we do? We talked about the filth of who we are as a sinner. We talk about the magnificence of a saving Jesus. We talk about the cross and what happened there. Oh, and then, by the way, he was raised three days later. We treat the resurrection of Jesus Christ like an extra point after a touchdown. Oh, it's yelling, by the way. He rose again. The crucifixion was for us. The beating was for us. The resurrection was for us. Paul would say later, everything in which we've ever done would be pointless, absolutely pointless, if it were not for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in this particular case, when it says this is the the burial custom, it still is the burial custom in Israel. If you were to die this morning, you would be buried tonight. You would not be embalmed. At most, you would be buried in the morning. You'd be covered with different um, ointments and things to keep the smell at bay as best it could. But these two men, why was Joseph of Arimathea mentioned in all four Gospels when not even all the seven statements were? And I'd like to think that we not leave here today until we recognize the qualities of a guy named Joseph and a guy named Nicodemus. Joseph of Arimathea, it sounds fancy, but I don't know what his background was, how he lived. Nicodemus, well, he came from the world of academia. This was a brilliant man. He was a man of wealth and stature and respect. You know as well as I do, a friend is a, someone who is a friend is a friend that comes in when others go out. That's a friend. We all know that. But even friends, when they come to you, what do they come to you for? To support you, to encourage you, to be with you, to hang with you, to let you know that you're not alone. And they're right next to you. In this case, there was a dead body. A body that was bloated, that was bleeding, that was unrecognizable. And these two men stepped out when everybody else had scattered, when the darkness had fallen, when there's confusion, when there's screams from the city wonder what's going on, when the temple veil that was as thick as any wall you've ever seen has been torn in two and panic has set in. Two men come to this place, one of them having begged Pilate, can I please take him? My first thought is, God is not going to let anything go undone. I mean, think about the loyalty of these men that stepped in as a friend at the last minute with no motive of reciprocation of friendship. Those words, it is finished, to telestai, can be used multiple ways and every one of them apply to who Jesus is if a servant would go to a master after completing something the servant would say to tell us die you just finished you've done well the, the servant would say to tell us die I've finished I've done well an artist painting something or creating something would simply sign and say to tell us die it is finished a priest when sacrificing a lamb when the lamb was complete when everything was done would whisper to the lamb and also proclaim to the family, it is finished. Your sacrifice has been made. And so when Jesus says, it is finished, 
This is not a defeat. This is not, oh, the pain is gone. This is a victory cry. This is something where he says, in every time they've ever started in heaven, having planned to come after us to rescue us from the mess we're in, on this place, from heaven's realm, Jesus talking and looking down at his father, discussing the angels, wondering what's going on, a realm we cannot imagine, a place we cannot picture in our human minds, other dimensions, not tied to the dimensions that we do know, all that grandeur to say, in that little blue speck, in that little blue dot in the middle of the universe, you're going to go. And Jesus is going to come here. And he's, not, he's going to come into a place where he created to be beaten, to be, put, to, to be um, accused, to be discouraged, to be mocked, to be made fun of by everybody who he'd ever created. And then he gets here and everything in which he said was, it's not time, it's not time, it's not time. Try to arrest him, it's not time. I want to tell you the people who you are, it's not time. Demons coming out and saying, I can't break him. He says, it's not time. A dead girl rising and looks to the father and says, don't say anything, it's not time. And in the, in the garden, when he simply says, father, the time has come. And the arrest begins. And they start that journey at 1 in the morning, going out 3 p.m., going out at this long day. And finally he gets to the place of saying, it, it is finished. Not, I'm over this. Not, I've been done with it. We've won. I fulfilled everything I said I would come to do. And I did it. And he did it for you. So yesterday, it was a you know, busy day. I had my phone off a lot. I had a funeral in the morning, a wedding in the afternoon. And I got a call from Joyce Anderson. And I missed the call. And I looked down. I got her call from Dan Hobby. He was a close friend. And... Um, called Dan Hobby real quick. I said, Dan, everything all right? He goes, have you talked to Carl and Joyce today? I said, no, no, no. What is it? And then Dan just, he just choked up. And he, he said, uh, well, um, Jake, he just can't take the pain anymore. So to give you a backstory on Carl and Joyce, they typically sit in the back corner at the 9 a.m. service right here. And we started this church and we, he just got word that this place Creekside was going on, and they pull up and they walk in, and they're in their late 80s. He had retired in the military, and, you know, paratrooper, seen a lot of things. And by his smile, you'd think he's protected in a cloak of all innocence. In their beautiful Tennessee accents, they walked in that door, he with a cane, or he with a walker, she with a cane, he going through dialysis three or four times a week, and never have they complained. Ever. If they're not here, he's in the hospital. And I would look at it, and they walked in, and here's what they said. They walked in, and I'm thinking, well, you know, and you're coming in here and you're, and you're, and you're, you're getting a start in your late 80s 
and not not a healthy late eighties, y'all. We've got late eighties in here who can do aerobics around us, right? But not they're not in that place. And I said, "You, you sure? We're just getting started here. <laughs> it's all we don't have much." And they both said, in their own words, the same thing. They said, "We want one more breath. Want one more run at something." I want to do something one more time. I don't want to sit. I want to do something. And they came on board. And not one time from visiting a hospital or calling them was there ever were hurting. I just, I, I've just been blown away. And so when I talked to her yesterday, she put on speakerphone. And I'm like, oh, Joyce, Joyce, Joyce. And she said, oh, Jake, he's, he just said the, the pain needs to stop. That we're going to call hospice on Monday. And we're going to... St- Sorry, I tried to... We're going to... We're going to... Um, we're going to... We know that it's time. And uh, he he had uh, heart failure for months, but he kept fighting. He kept fighting. He kept fighting. And I said, uh, we always kept saying, you know, they're draining fluid off his lungs, off his heart, and he just wouldn't stop fighting. And he finally said, the fight's over. And she says, and I've told him it's okay. And I said, Carl. You have left nothing undone here. I can't say that. Can you? For Carl, he can say it. Two letters. It. A boy born in poverty in Tennessee. Pulling his own bootstraps up and making a journey going to serve our country and first time out of a plane was to jump out of it to fight someone it two letters that life is finished and tomorrow he signs a paper that says stop the healing I'm ready and he did so with victory in his voice there wasn't regret It is finished is a rally cry. It is a victory cry. And Jesus says, it, those two letters describing everything, is finished. And the words reverberate today to say in all the things you've ever wondered, God, can I be forgiven? It is finished. God, but you know I haven't walked with you. It is finished. God, you know the, the problem, you know the turmoil, you know my mind. I present one thing and who I am in church, but I go home, I'm a wreck. No, it is finished. You're forgiven. All those things that think you, you separate you from God, they're over and they're done. Don't try to put him back on that cross again. Don't do that. 
don't say for some reason your struggle or sin is greater than a sacrifice. I know that's not your intention, but it is finished. It, his life walking on this earth, is finished. It, all that stuff that you deal with, is over. It's finished. For those of you who see yourselves as impure, he sees you in Christ as being pure. For those of you who see yourself as insecure and wondering, can I ever be this person? He sees you in full acceptance. This is who he is. And so that's my... um, I guess that's my challenge to myself. I have a long way to go in a lot of areas before I could ever say to you, say to myself and say to God, I've left nothing undone here. And may we be a church that people walk in here and no matter what, no matter from where, no matter who they are, we're a church that has a banner of it is finished. And we'll never forget what the it meant. We'll never forget what the journey may be for them. And so I say this for two crowds. Those who believe to say this. We have a long way to go, don't we? Some of us. If we're honest with ourselves. And for those who are not believers, he did everything he could do for you. Everything. And I would ask yourself, if you would just take a time and just think, has there been a time when you've just truly accepted him and you've truly said, God, yeah, I believe it. You don't need a priest, you don't need a pastor to pray with you in that area. You don't. There are no magic words in a sinner's prayer. It's an acceptance that you know that you're going to die. Because sin has caused you to die. You know that you need a savior. Because there's only one lamb that can forgive you, and that lamb is Jesus. There's no tradition that can save you. You know in this prayer that you pray at some point that you say, God, I surrender. I can't figure it all out. I can't fully grasp it. Just say, I give in and just move. He doesn't say surrender your brain at the door. As a matter of fact, he says wake it up and begin to grasp things you've never seen before. Accept the fact that he died for you. Thank him for the fact that he died for you. And then recognize that he rose again for you. Because just like Carl said, I don't have to die in pain. And neither do you. Neither do you. That funeral yesterday that I preached, an 89-year-old lady who grew up, by the way, in the middle of the sticks in West Virginia, she used to read this geography book. It would have pictures of like Switzerland and all this stuff. She had no idea her son-in-law would become a two-star general and would go all over the world. And he would bring that little lady from West Virginia to visit everywhere. He said, and everywhere she went, all she could say is, it's just like the book. And her West Virginia ex says, just like the book. Just like the book. I don't know what it's going to be like in heaven. But whenever we're in it, whenever we talk about it, whenever we feel it, I think we're going to get up there and say, it feels so good. It's just like the book. Just like it. It's finished. We have the easiest role possible. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for... Um, your message to our hearts. God, with, uh, 
without any other thought in our mind, for those who believe and hear, we would think this and take a moment to pray. God, what are the areas we need to stop putting you back on the cross for it's over? What are the areas, our weaknesses, those things that tear us down and help us stop? Help us, Lord, grow closer to you through recognizing that you took all this for us. And God, for those who've never trusted you as their Savior, that Lord, the person that invite them here could be the best minister they ever speak to. Or maybe they can come up to one of us and say, I don't know exactly how to word it. I don't know what to do. If you have any questions, just ask one of us. Take that time to call him and claim him as your father, your spiritual father. Lord, we pray that you give us a, a grace next Saturday. God, bring us together as a church next Sunday. There's going to be a lot of visitors. Father, I'm sure there's a lot of anxiety that will fall on us unnecessarily. God, we want to make you proud as your kids. Be with us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.